Yo, what's up everyone? It's Josh Pongo here, and I'm very excited about today's guest, and his name is Howard Storm. And Howard Storm is a former atheist who's had a near-death experience that literally changed his life forever, which is chronicled in his book, My Descent into Death, A Second Chance at Life, which was endorsed by the popular writer Anne Rice, who actually wrote the foreword to the book. And Howard has had the opportunity to share his story on many well-known platforms such as Oprah, NBC's Today Show, 48 Hours, and Discovery Channel. And so, Howard, it's good to have you on the show, man. Thank you. Thanks for um, inviting me. Cool, cool. You know, so if you can, um, this is your first time on the show. You know, can you just give us a brief sketch and just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, what was your life like before that unexpected day in Paris in 1985? You know, so did you grow up religious or anything? I was born in 46, and so the culture of post-World War II America was um, that most people, I think, went to church or went to church occasionally. The um, culture pretended, presumed that it was a Christian culture in America. And so we were taken to Sunday school as children, my sister, my two sisters and I, and my parents went on occasion to church, but there was zero religion at home. Um, I never saw a Bible opened or nobody ever prayed or anything like that. And I was quite intrigued by it because the Sunday school teachers were really great and we did lots of arts and crafts and I loved it. And we had little children's church and um, I thought that was good. So as a child, um, I was steeped in Christianity. And when I was um, 14, 15 years old, I was trying to understand things and with a um, talk with my pastor, which convinced me that he didn't believe in anything. Um, and that Christianity was um, full of like, these beautiful ideals, but the people that went to church were all a bunch of hypocrites. Now, I'm saying this from the perspective as a, a teenager, you know, I just thought, I mean, I'm sure they weren't all hypocrites, but for me, that's what it appeared to be. And my father and I um, were beginning to conflict tremendously. And so I um, started exploring philosophies and decided I was an existentialist when I went to college at the age of 17. I took a class, Introduction to Philosophy, and that teacher was an existentialist, atheist, and um, I decided that that's what I was. And from then on, um, if I had a faith, it would have been um, materialism, hedonism, um, humanism, those sorts of things. And it served me well in culture because um, ultimately I became um, completely self-absorbed as an artist, egotistical, manipulative, and cold-hearted, and was obsessed with my success as an artist, and I became a... Um, professor of art and taught at a university and exhibited my work and was striving for fame 
as an artist. That's what it was. Okay, so let's talk about your near-death experience now. So this was, from what I recall in your book, this was in 1985. Uh, give us the details of what exactly happened on that day. Okay, I'll give you a short version because if I give it to you in detail, this will take um, several days for me to tell you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think we want that much time. Um, when people have asked me how long did my experience last, the only thing I can compare it to is it was much longer than it took me to go through graduate school, which was three years. But there's no time in a near-death experience. And so um, all you can do is make an um, estimate because this, one of the things that I learned in my near-death experience very um, early was my whole sense of time was gone. It's all now. There's no past or present. You know, it's just now. So, um, a quick summary of the near-death experience was on June 1st, 1985, I was on the last day of a art tour of Europe, which I was leading with a group of students. And the next morning, we were flying back to the US. We'd been in Europe three weeks and we'd had a really good time. Gone to lots of museums and galleries and um, everybody was exhausted. It was 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning in Paris. And I had been at um, with my wife at Delacroix's studio. Nobody wanted to get up and see it, but it was, I liked Eugene Delacroix very much. And was back at the room and trying to get the group going so we could go to the Georges Pompidou Center. And I fell to the floor in our hotel room with the most acute pain I'd ever experienced in my life. My wife called the desk at the hotel and they called an emergency service and very quickly a doctor appeared. He got me off the floor onto the bed, examined me and said that I had had a perforation of my small stomach. So what was happening was is that the stomach acid and digestive juices and all that good stuff was um, migrating into my abdominal cavity. And it feels like fire. It feels like um, you've got red hot coals in the middle of you. So he called an ambulance and um, told me that I had to have surgery immediately or I would die. And the ambulance came and took me across Paris to the big city hospital, which is Cochin. And I was taken an emergency examined by two doctors who confirmed what he had said. They x-rayed and took my um, medical history, etc., and told me that I had to have the surgery like immediately or I would die and sent me off to the surgical hospital, which is a few blocks away. I'm sure that they did not know that there was no surgeon available at the surgical hospital because it was a Saturday. So I was parked in a room and was not under the care of anybody because there was no doctor to admit me into the surgical hospital. I was just placed in a room and for the next 10 hours, I never saw a doctor. I was never given any medication and visited 
maybe like once an hour by a nurse that would ask me how I was doing. And I would tell her that I was dying and that I needed morphine. And she would say, sorry, you know, there's no doctor to prescribe it. Um, the pain that started off with the most acute pain I'd ever experienced in my life enlarged over the hours into being a pain that um, was my entire abdomen from my shoulders to my groin. And it was um, incredible, excruciating pain. And doctors in the United States told me that my best life expectancy would have been five hours, but probably just a few hours. So this started at 11 o'clock in the morning at 8.30 that night. A nurse came into the room and said they were unable to locate a doctor and they would try and get one the next day, Sunday. She left the room and I told my wife that it was time for us to say goodbye, that it was over. I told her to tell my parents and children that I loved them and etc. And she cried a lot. And I closed my eyes um, to let happen what had been trying to happen for hours, which was lights out, oblivion, the end, no more, no nothing, non-existence. I knew that. I knew it certainly. During that whole time, it had never occurred to me that there was anything other than just annihilation. And I went into unconsciousness, and to my complete surprise, I was wide awake and standing next to the bed, feeling better than I'd ever felt in my entire life. So I was ecstatically happy because I felt like I had somehow been healed, and I didn't know how. Just bang, there I was great. And all my senses were heightened, and I was—I did a re reality check on my body, and I felt um, better than normal. And I was looking around the room and noticed that the bed that I had been in was occupied with a dead thing, turned away from me, mostly covered with a sheet. And when I bent over and looked at the face, it looked just like me. I could not accept that it was me because I was standing there looking at it. And I know you can't stand it over yourself and be looking at yourself. That's not possible. And I couldn't figure out why that look, that thing looked like me. And it was very upsetting. I tried to communicate with my wife and my roommate, who was a very kind, elderly Frenchman, and they were completely unresponsive to me yelling and screaming and cussing at them because they made me angry because they wouldn't respond. And I heard people outside the room calling me by name in English, which I thought was strange because the people in the French hospital spoke French or with a very heavy French accent. These people were speaking hey. simple English and they were saying, Howard, hurry up, come on, let's go. I went over to the doorway of the room and looked out into the hallway, which was very gray and 
um, unclear as opposed to the room which was very bright and super clear. And I said, who are you? I'm sick. I've been waiting for a doctor. I'm supposed to have surgery. And they said, we know all about you. We've been waiting for you. You have to come with us now. Let's go. So reluctantly, I left the brightness of the room and went out into the hallway with this group of people who led me down the hallway. Do you actually see them or you just hear them? Oh, yeah. You know, they were um, men and women. Everything was very gray. And they would not, they stayed away from me. So in this hazy atmosphere, I couldn't make them out clearly, but they were okay. plainly. Like human beings. Yeah. Okay. And we walked and walked and walked. And as we walked, I was not perceiving this at first, but it was getting darker and the atmosphere was getting um, closer, heavier. Yeah. They started off very officious. Let's go. Hurry up move, keep going like that. And then they turned into nasty. And then they turned into scary, ugly things. Like I can't wait to get them, stuff like that. And so I'm getting really scared. And I said, I'm not going to go with you any further, which was a bluff because now we were in complete darkness and any further, which was which way? Which way is, <laughs> I'll you know, go in that dark direction. <laughs> so yeah. I was, I was really, I was really panicked and and terrified. But I wanted to get away from them. They said, "No, you've got to go further." And so they started to push and pull at me, and so I fought back with them. And I had um, wrestled in high school and played football in high school and was really good in track and field stuff. So I was a big, strong guy who, had, you know been in fights and things. And um, so I fought. I was trying to get them off me. I, just, I, I wasn't trying to beat them up. I just didn't want them pushing and pulling and touching me. And they really liked that a lot. And so they were um, enjoying my feeble efforts to um, drive them away from me. And they upped the ante by starting to um, scratch me and bite me. And there was a lot of taunting, which was um, extremely vulgar. And then um, there were a lot of them now. I don't know how many, but a, a lot. And uh, from the biting and scratching, it went into um, invasive things. And I don't talk about that because it's that in this world, and I mean this seriously, no one has ever imagined or tried to depict what they do down there. Um, and people don't need to know, they don't need to know about that. And eventually I was all ripped up and laying on the floor of that place and I heard a voice, which I think came from my chest and said, pray to God. And I thought, I don't believe in God. I don't pray. And the voice said, pray to God. And I thought, I don't know how to pray. I can't pray. I don't know, I don't know what praying is. And the voice said, pray to God. 
And I thought, okay, when I was a little boy, I went to Sunday school and we learned prayers. What was that? And I'm trying to remember, and all I could remember was things that I had memorized in school, like um, the Gettysburg Address and the Pledge of Allegiance and, you know, all these things. Then finally, I got, um, the Lord is my shepherd. That's all I could remember. And so I said it because I, I also thought that to pray, you had to say it a lot. So I said it, I murmured it. And with that, the people that were around me became very angry. And they were saying to me in extremely coarse language, there is no God, nobody can hear you. And if you don't stop that, we're going to make you hurt and suffer much more than you can imagine. And I realized that any mention of God was so repellent to them that it drove them further into the darkness. So I started making up stuff about God, like God's going to get you, God hates you, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. you know. I didn't believe any of this stuff, but I was uh, saying this worked. I mean, I, I'd, I'd found a way to <laughs> repel them, so I was repelling them and eventually um, drove them away from me. And then I lay in that place, and I had an opportunity to go over my life. And since I didn't have any um, real religious or any kind of theological understanding, what I decided was is that um, I had lived a garbage life and that I had gone down the sewer pipe into the cesspool of the universe with all the other garbage people, and this is who I was, and I was in the company of my kindred spirits, my other, the other garbage people. That's what I concluded going over my life. And when I said I went over my life, I, mean, I went over my whole life. I mean, in, in your mind, mind at the time, like at that moment, were you thinking that this is hell then? No, I mean, the word hell never occurred to me. Okay. I mean, so just to, once again, for just for the listeners, to put this in perspective. So up to this point in your life, you, you were a materialist. You didn't believe that there was a God. You didn't believe in heaven or hell or angels or no life after death. And then you have this pretty scary moment with these beings that were not demons, correct? But they were like people. And yeah. I mean, just using the language that you were saying, you were walking in a hallway, you were wrestling with them. So, so you being in a state of awareness, you were actually not like in a like a ghostly type of person, but you were actually pretty physical, right? Totally. Physical. Okay. Yeah. And then, so yeah, so you were being tortured by these these beings, and then you hear a voice that might have come out of your chest and said, "Pray to God." And and then what happened after you said those prayers and you know calling? So they left me. They were gone. They were gone. I knew that they were somewhere, but they were beyond um, their ability to hear me or for me to hear them. But I knew that they were. It's kind of drove waiting. them away. Yeah. So I lay in that place and thought about this situation, and it seemed completely hopeless because I didn't know where I was. I was too ripped up to go anywhere. I couldn't crawl, I couldn't move. And the physical pain was, my, my entire body was in pain. But. What hurt more was why did they do this to me? That is what really hurt because what did I do to them? I didn't do anything and they, and they, they did all this to me. And then I realized that 
basically they were processing me to be one of them. Um, and that in their world, it was sort of, um, I'm going to use corny um, cliches. It's dog eat dog. It's, um, you know, king of the mountain. You know, it was just a, a world of um, domination and torment and humiliation. And that's uh, that was their existence. And they were um, processing me kind of like boot camp to be one of them. And that I realized that the only way that you can survive down there would be to be more vicious than any of them. I mean, if you, if you want to get along down there, you had to be better than they were. And I thought about that prospect and I knew that I was capable of doing that. I could be the baddest of the bad, but I didn't want to be that. And I didn't want to be part of their world, but I didn't know how to get out of it. And so in that hopelessness, I just sunk into deep depression when my mind wandered back to my childhood of a little boy sitting in a Sunday school classroom singing Jesus Loves Me. And when I saw that image in my mind, I also felt the simple belief in this superhero guy, you know, the, the Jesus that they have in the pictures in churches, um, you know, this kind guy with the beard and the long hair and the white <laughs> robe. And, uh -huh. and I realized um, I wanted him. I, wa I wanted what, when I was an eight-year-old boy, was shown to me as the son of God. I, I, w I want that guy, you know, I want him to rescue me. So I called out in the darkness, Jesus, please save me. I was not raised a Baptist, so... <laughs> kind of surprising that I said that, but that's what I said. And with that, a tiny light appeared in the darkness and it got very bright, very fast and it came over me. And my first reaction to that light was, I thought it was going to burn me up. It was so bright. I thought I would just sizzle into a little crisp, you know, but it wasn't hot and it wasn't dangerous. If, if light in this world, it would have fried me, but it didn't. And out of the light emerged hands and arms, and he reached down and touched me. And when he touched me, all the gore that I could see that I was in that light all began to vanish, and I was restored. And the hands went behind my back, and he picked me up and held me very close very firmly against him. And I was filled with his love. And I cried out of happiness, um, cried like I'd never cried in my entire life for joy. And he rubbed my back. And as he was rubbing my back and I was slobbering all over him, which was kind of embarrassing, but I didn't care. I realized that we weren't on the ground anymore and we were beginning to move faster and faster upward and out of the darkness. And I'm trying to get my um, emotions together to see where we're going. And eventually I was able to look into the direction that we're going. And I saw a world of light and I had a giant, oh no, everything that I said was not true and a fairy tale and stupid is <laughs> real god's real we're going to god's house and i thought to myself he's made a terrible mistake 
I'm a piece of shit hmm. and I don't belong here. And with that, we stopped our movement and he spoke to me for the first time and he said, we don't make mistakes, you do belong here. And my next thought was, how do you know what I just thought? And he said, and when I say he said, I'm talking about um, telepathic communication. Right. He said, to me, I know everything you've ever thought. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> not good. There's lots of things that I've thought. <laughs> I know that I've thought. He said, but I already know them. And I was trying not to think of the things that I didn't want him to know that I thought. And I started thinking those things. <laughs> I was laughing. Uh -huh. No, the things that I was thinking about had a lot to do with women's bodies, <laughs> um, which I've always found very interesting. I don't know why. I think it has to do with being a um, human being. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So he's laughing, and I'm going, he's not mad at me. He thinks I'm funny. <laughs> this is amusing. So I'm like, I can lighten up with this guy, you know? He's okay. And one of the things that I found about um, this person was is that um, he's delightful, he's fun, he's easy. Um, and he's, I, I like to refer to him as my best friend because he's my best friend. He's everybody's best friend. And he's not um, here to uh, put us down or to um, condemn us just to the opposite, he wants us to be successful and to be filled with joy and love and peace and have great lives. That's that's what he's interested in. So anyways, we were conversing and he said they had friends that he wanted me to meet. So he called out to them with musical tones and they came over and they gave me a life review in chronological order. We saw scenes from my life. And at first it was really fun, but as I became an adult, my teenage years of rebellion and stuff like that, it wasn't so fun because what I learned from the life review is really simple, that I was created to be a loving, compassionate human being, to care for other people. That was my job. That's why God made me. That's why God made you and God made everybody. We're just here to care for each other and to love. And I, as I grew and matured, became less interested in other people and more self-absorbed. And it made the angels and it made Jesus very sad that I did that. And so many times during my life review, I said, I don't want to see any more of this. I hate it. And they said, no, you need to watch it. So they made me watch it. And when it was done, I was greatly relieved that it was over. Jesus said, do you have any questions? And I said, I've got a million questions. He said, go ahead, ask whatever you like. So I asked him everything I could think of to ask and everything I asked, he answered. And we went places and we saw things and he taught me lots of good stuff. And when it was, when I had every question that I could think of to ask him, I said, I want to go, I want to go live in heaven, which we were outside of, not in. And he said, no, you're not ready for that yet. You just wouldn't fit in. You need to go back and live, 
live the life the way that you should have lived it, that God made you to live in the first place. So we had a huge argument and I fought with Jesus as hard as I possibly could verbally to convince him to let me go to heaven. And like the world is like a horrible, rotten place. And he won every argument because he's a lot smarter than me. And uh, I finally gave up and I said, okay, I'll go back. And when I said that, I was back. No transition, just like slammed back in the body, back in the pain, back in the hospital room in the bed. And immediately the nurse who had been in the room a half an hour earlier came back to the room and said, a doctor has arrived at the hospital. This was now nine o'clock and you're going to have the surgery. And they booted my wife out of the room and they prepped me for surgery in the room. And then I was taken by Gurney down the hall to surgery. And I don't remember. Next thing I remember was the next morning. So that's it. Hmm. So, I mean, just to kind of backtrack a little bit, I mean, when it first started, um, actually when you were following those other, you know, um, I guess you could call them dark beings, you know, through that hallway, uh, like you were being dragged into, I guess you could kind of call it like a hellish kind of place, yeah. for lack of a better word. Um, but, you know, just kind of hearing your story, even on other interviews, I mean, you do, you do seem like a pretty decent guy for the most part. So, yeah, I mean, like you, you could say that you were self-absorbed and maybe you had some, you know, quote unquote, bad thoughts growing up. But when you I mean, one question that can come up that I think my listeners might have would be like, how can a loving God allow you to be tortured that the way you were? I mean, even when I was reading your book, I was like, dude, that's that's pretty hardcore. You know what I mean? They were eating at you, you know, and tearing you apart. Yeah. And I'm thinking, does that kind of punishment really fit the quote unquote crime of, you know, the life that you lived of maybe you weren't the best person, but I mean, would it really deserve that kind of afterlife, so to speak? Well, I don't believe that God punishes anybody. And I don't believe that God sends anybody to hell. Um, I believe that God gives us an incredible gift, which is free will. So we can make, for example, in this world, we can make our lives heavenly, or we can make them hell. Sure. And but do you think your actions that you've committed throughout your lifetime deserve that kind of, you know, let's just say if this was a whole, you know, love, well, love cause and effect at play. Uh, God, God created a, a play people that don't want to go to heaven and you don't want to go to heaven by how you've lived your life here, whether you've been a loving person or not. If you're a loving person, you're probably going to go to heaven. If you were um, an unloving person, you're not going to heaven because you're not, it's, you're not suitable. You're not fit. You know, you don't have, you don't have the love that is the characteristic of heaven. So, God created a place of separation, and the only thing that makes hell hellish is the people that are down there. God doesn't God doesn't direct those people to do those things. They they choose to do those things um, because it's their their inner nature. They degenerate into that. God has rescued people from hell. It's in the Bible. When Jesus died, he went there and preached and took people out of there. Um, he did it once, and I hope and pray that he'll do it many more times. Um, 
The Bible says in four different places, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I really believe that if they were to want to get out of hell, they could possibly get out of there. That as, as Jesus came to me, he would do it. If you do it for me, he'll do it for anybody. But um, they don't because they, um, they're full of hate and they're full of cruelty and anger. So they make, they make it nasty. It doesn't have to be that way. Hell, hell could be um, much less hellish if they would um, stop behaving the way they do. But, you know, it's the same thing in this world. Why do people, why do people, like, uh, let me give you an example, because I, I feel very strongly about this, so I want to rant a little bit. Sure. Um, one thing that I, I hate and I'm irrationally angry about is cruelty to children. We have a museum in Cincinnati that I just visited with my um, sister-in-law a couple of days ago, and I have a whole exhibit about um, human slavery in the world today. And most of this involves children. Some of it is forced labor, where children work, you know, seven hours, I mean, seven days a week, you know, 12, 16 hours a day, like making bricks or you know, whatever. Um, slavery of children being abducted and, you know, at the age of 12, 13, 14, forced into prostitution where they might have sex with 20 or 100 men a day. Um, and, of course, get nothing for it, except maybe drugs to keep them stoned enough to lay there. Why do people do that? Why, why do drug addicts you know we have a huge opiate opioid epidemic in the united states why do addicts go to their grandmothers and steal all of their grandmother's money and all of their valuable possessions for the sake of buying more drugs why do people do that why why do people make this world hell there's not there's not really any difference between what's going on in this world and what goes on in the world in our afterlife of hell it's just the same thing except that in hell there's no there's no police to stop it there's no no one to interfere you know they just act it all out god hates hell god doesn't want anybody to go to hell god would prefer that not there was not one single person in hell and i know that for a fact because jesus told me that mm -hmm. so i mean just to um kind of give a little scenario so what if someone as you were saying like for you 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 really hate the fact of children being um, abused in you know a variety of different ways whether it's through forced labor or sexual abuse whatever I mean how how would it kind of show a sense of justice if there's someone who let's just say was on the other side where they were the quote-unquote bad person who did put children into forced labor did sexually abuse them and then on their deathbed you know they said Lord Jesus come into my heart you know, they call upon the Lord and, and then he was saved and then he goes to heaven in, in comparison to the person who lived a good life. I mean, not just a decent life, but a pretty good life, you know, and doesn't call upon the Lord to be saved. And yet, where would that person go, in your opinion? Well, you know, you're getting me into dangerous territory because you're asking me to play God here, which I, I don't want to do because that's like, a, I consider that blasphemous. But in the... In the realm of of just intellectual speculation without pretending that I'm God, okay? Because I sure. don't want to do No, that. I mean, I'm just um, yeah. responding yeah. to when you said call I, upon I the Lord, you know, so. God judges 
by the heart. This is in the Bible also. God judges by the heart and we judge by appearances. So what that means is like, you know, if you're a nice looking person and you dress nice and you talk nice and you behave well, I think you're a good person because I don't know what's going on inside of you. And I, you know, I don't want to say you, of course I mean anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh -huh. I judge by appearances, and if you're really attractive, then I think you must be really attractive person on the inside. <laughs> um, <laughs> because because I'm human, you know. If you're really nasty looking and filthy, dirty, and and talk nasty, I'm like, ew, you know, ow, oh, you're a really scary <laughs> person, you know. And like I'm like, I'm tempted to want to get away from you. As a pastor, I have to try really hard to not see people that way. And, you know, it's been my experience working in soup kitchens, stuff like that. Some people who really smell bad, you know, they, they smell like poop and they're not pleasant to be around, turn out to be really, really good people. Sure. And it's also been my experience in my life that people that I thought were like really good people and really attractive and nice and stuff like that turned out to be really rotten people, nasty, awful people, you know. Um, they're wise enough not to cut your throat, but they'll they'll cut you up in different ways. You sure, know? sure, yeah. Um, yeah. So, as a human, I judge by appearances. God judges by what's in the heart. So God knows. And so, if a person makes a deathbed confession and calls up to God, it's outrageously unfair. And there's a good example of this in the Bible of the vineyard and the workers coming late and stuff and getting sure. paid. Or the thief but, on the cross, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, right. Even better example. But um, the point is God, God is so merciful that if you say, I am sorry, I've been a jerk. I shouldn't have done the things I did. God, you know, help me. God says, okay, good enough for me. You know, it's like, I mean, and, and the only thing that I can p compare it to is being a grandparent because I have nine grandchildren, different ages. And uh, as a grandparent, I love my grandchildren unconditionally. As a parent, I had lots of conditions on my love. Sit up, eat properly, wipe your mouth. You know, no, you can't have another Coca-Cola. You, know? <laughs> uh, you know, my grandkids, quite the opposite. You know, my daughter said to me once, like, dad, you're spoiling my children. And I said, yeah, it's my job. <laughs> you mm. know, my job is to sure. indulge everything they do. And like, okay, they break a valuable, you know, piece of china in the house. One time they broke a sculpture that I made. I'm like, oh, well, they're just kids. Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't do that again, kids. That's not nice. <laughs> that, sure. uh, oh, my kids would have gotten beaten for that, you know. I mean, my children would have gotten beaten. My grandkids, they can get away with anything. Yeah, I, I get what you're what you're saying in the sense of like, um, we can't judge, you know, from our perspective as human beings judging another person. So I get that. I, I'm just saying, like, for the sake of argument, for a person, for for a God um, who does see the heart, right? If people believe in yeah. that God who sees our, I'm just trying to tease us out a little bit, um, just kind yeah. of based upon when you were mentioning how you called upon Jesus and then he saved you. Anyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. So I'm just saying, okay, so based upon the heart, if there was another person who was a pretty decent person, um, who has a good heart that God sees, yet doesn't call upon the Lord, what does that determine for their destiny then? I mean, are they still able to go to heaven? I mean, because if they grew up in another religion, let's just say in another country. Oh, oh you know, okay. 
Yeah. So well, I, I get it. Yeah, we're not judging people's hearts if we don't know it. That's so. study by two Norwegian um, scientists who went to India to study near-death experiences. And this is a published report. They studied hundreds of near-death experiences in India. And um, what they found, and they said in their report, was they never saw any of the Indian gods, but they all saw this man with a beard and long hair dressed in a white robe who came to them and loved them and but they didn't know his name so in christian it's called the anonymous christ that if jesus is the divine activity of god which is how he's described theologically you know the divine economy of god um and everything was made through him and by him he knows everybody he loves everybody and as a african theology professor I had by the name of Gwinye Muzarera taught us in seminary that the people in Africa have always known Christ. They just didn't know the Jesus story, but they knew the Christ and he's always been with them. And I would say that would be the same in all the continents. Okay. Do you tend to make a distinction between Jesus and the Christ or is it the same or how do you kind of think well, about that? Yeah, there's a, a Jesus was the Christ, which was like this little event that happened 2,000 years ago in Israel, which was just a few years. I mean, his, his active ministry was, you know, about three years, more or less. And it affected a few hundreds, maybe a few thousand people. And it's a, it's a incredibly interesting and important story but you can know him without ever knowing that story or even knowing his name that's what i believe okay and so just to kind of go back to your experience you did call upon jesus and then this bright light came and this person's you know hands appeared and, and they embraced you and you were weeping and etc um at any point did he say yeah i'm jesus well, I asked him um, to show me what his life was like in Israel. So okay. we went and saw scenes from his life. Like what you probably read from the Gospels, I guess, right? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that, yeah, that's just what I was wondering because, like, um, I know you call upon this light and this being came and helped you. Um, so, so did this being that you refer to as Jesus, did he clearly say, that he is God himself, as in the second person of the Trinity? Well, it was interesting because he never used the word God. He always used the term one. One? Or the one or one. Oh, the one, okay. Yeah, which I think is interesting because that's a really good um, term for God. I just wanted to ask because when I was reading your book, um, like some of the questions would pop up in my mind. I'm like, is this... Like, for example, I was really trying to come to terms with, okay, who is this, this Jesus to Howard, you know? And so the stuff that you were saying about Jesus and Christianity and stuff, I was always wondering in my mind, like, okay, is this message that he's sharing based solely upon his NDE of what he heard Jesus himself say? Or is this something that his theology kind of developed over time? Because I also know that you went to seminary as well. So I was wondering, okay, right. what were the direct ones when, you know, did you just assume it was Jesus or you just knew it, you know, uh, intuitively well, it was no, him? I, mean, I, I, I knew it immediately and then okay. I always referred to him as Jesus. And okay. 
Um, but he never said to me, I am Jesus. <laughs> okay. I already knew. Jesus. Sure, sure. Yeah, you just and knew it. Sure. She showed yeah. me his life as Jesus and stuff. So when he talked about God as one, I knew that what he, and I was talking about the Shema and that in the Shema, which is the prayer that every observant Jew is required to say, the at Lord least is twice one. a day, 100, is, um, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And one means more than just a singularity. But when you think about singularity, it's really amazing because singularity means it's all God, right? Oop, you know, go into that. That's a pretty deep subject. <laughs> but um, he made it, it was very clear that he and God were one. Also, when we talked about the one, he let me know that I was not ready to meet the one and that the one was so holy and so pure that one had to be completely holy and pure before you could ever go in the presence of the one. So he, there's, you know, in Christianity, we call it God the Father, which in seminary we are taught and which Jesus explained to me is so beyond our ability to understand or know and so incredibly powerful and good and pure that we have to be pretty highly developed spiritually before we can deal with that. So, but in God's love and desire for um, relationship with his creation and his creatures, us, he comes to us in a way that we can deal with it and we're not going to be fried up. We're not going to... Um, be annihilated and just the opposite we're actually enhanced and welcome to come approach to the one in time when we're ready and then there's the other part of it, the other part of it which you'd alluded to in terms of the uh, triune god or trinitarian understanding of god that um, there's also the, the spirit of god that um, lives within us so i can say that i have god with me but I cannot say that I'm God because that would be stupid, idiotic, and blasphemous. So I'm not God, but I've got God in me, you know? And so if you got to know me, sometimes you'd say, oh, he can be a godly guy at times. And you can also say he can be a real ass at times too. Let's <laughs> say, like, well, okay, that's the hard part. <laughs> Let's talk about the godly part. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Okay, you know, um, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. You know, when I was reading your book, I obviously I noticed that it's very Christian, and I've read a lot of uh, near-death experience, you know, stories and yeah. documentaries and all that stuff. And um, and I've heard some of your other interviews where some of your interviewers kind of had a hard time with it. I was like, huh, okay, you know. And I'm not here to give you a hard time. I mean, I think you're aware of even some of my background, as you were telling me through the email. You know, my background was Christian. You know, I was pretty much raised in it. Um, so when I read yours, I was like. But from what little I know of you, you're not um, disavowed from that background. No, 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 I'm not. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's why when I read your story, um, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of seeing some things a little differently. But I'm like, oh, yeah, I like this guy. I want him on the show. And I really enjoyed, you know, I, re I could really sense your heart when you share your story. Like, it was, it was such a powerful experience that you had. And so when I heard it, when I read it, you know, I'm, I wasn't, I don't want to say that it's not true. I mean, it was your experience that was very real to you. And, you know, I'm sure some people who are really like zealous Christians, they could be hearing, 
your story and they would say, see, you know, Jesus is the only way or Christianity is the truth, you know, not realizing the other body of NDE research and stories that are out there that to that appeared to be very different from your experience. I'm not going to say necessarily contradictory, um, but they're different, you know, including my own out of body experiences that I've had. And, you know, so what do you make of those other ones? That of those other NDE stories that have no Jesus, no judgment, no hell. And and in one sense, yeah. I guess this one can be kind of contradictory. I mean, you have people like Anita Morjani, when when I don't know if you've heard heard of her story and from her book Dying to Be Me, where she did say that she became source, which in a sense I, I, kind of implies that's God, you know. And she would say things like, you know, it doesn't matter whether you believe in Jesus, Buddha, Shiva, Allah, or none of the above. And you know, there are even the works of like Eben Alexander, who, you know, I had him on my show and it was it was a pretty non-religious experience um, that he yeah. had. And even Raymond Moody reading some of his, you know, data that he's collected saying that even in his research, you know, he didn't hear a single reference to a heaven or hell like the way, you know, anything like the customary yeah. picture that we're exposed to in society. Even those people who did have NDEs, you know, they stress how unlike their experiences were to what they were expected you know, because of their religious training. So I just kind of want to see what would you what would you say to that other body of uh, you know evidence that people have with their near death stories that are just different than yours okay. and can appear contradictory. Yeah, um, I I'm very aware of what you've brought up. I've read other NDEs, um, and I have tried to be as faithful and honest and true to my experience as I possibly can. And one of the reasons why I chose to become a Christian after my near death experience. Um, yeah. And I chose to go into Christianity and I chose to go into Christianity because it's my culture, it's my background. And I felt that it was um, the truth and the best path to um, God. I am not an exclusivist I'm an inclusivist, and I think Jesus was an inclusivist. I think Jesus' whole purpose was to bring people to God, to bring people to love, um, and that, unfortunately and sadly, religion oftentimes, and, I'm, and when I say religion, I don't mean just Christianity, but all religions, become tribal, they become self-righteous, they're more interested in um, control and dominance and um, adherence to their traditions or rules that they make up. Um, and I think all of those things are objectionable. Sure. Um, and the best response I ever heard to this was Mother Teresa was asked what she thought was the best religion she was asked this in India by reporters, where Christianity is 3%, you know, and it's predominantly Hindu and then Buddhist and Sikh, etc. Um, and she said, quote, I love all religions, I love my own the best. Yeah. And so I would like everybody to be just like me. And if you don't like M&Ms with peanuts, what's wrong? Because <laughs> I love them. Yeah. You know? Um, and my wife does too, so we share that in common. <laughs> I love them too, just to let you know. <laughs> oh, good. Well, come on over. Because we always have some. <laughs> and I I like asparagus, but um, cooked a certain way. Yeah, I so like do I. <laughs> I mean, 
I, I have I have my culture, my background. I mean, I understand and speak English, and I'm terrible at all other languages. <laughs> and so I choose to work in. In other words, I understand that I am a product of my experience. I mean, I get that. But my 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 experience has been expanded by speaking to other people, like for example, not just other Christians, but by um, speaking with Buddhists and with. I'm I'm mean, talking about in foreign real real. Not not American Buddhists because we could argue whether they even know what to talk. To. I'm, talking, I'm talking about. I mean, I've talked to real Hindus and stuff like that. And here's what I found. What I've found is that people that love God, we have no problems. We get along great. We we agree on everything important. When I talk to people that love religion, I don't have anything in common with them, and I'm including Christians in that conversation if people have made their religion their god i don't i i can't find any common ground with them there's just nothing but disagreement you know um and it's it's painful to be with them. for me it's painful to be with them when i know meet people no matter whether whether they're muslims or whatever if they love god we're like you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Now, um, if you love God, you're, you're open to how God has spoken to their culture. Because I believe, as um, I referred earlier to uh, what Gwynye Muzurera said, that the Christ is husband, that the Christ has been speaking to people all over the world um, as long as people have been listening. The problem is, is that then people pervert the message and turn it into um, little tribal things of like you're either in or you're out, and if you're out, you're you're going to hell, and if you're in, you're going you know you're going yeah. to heaven. Or um, it's sad because we could find more commonality in the essentials if we strove there. Sure, sure. I mean, just listening to you, I mean that your Christianity is like if you were sitting down in front of me. I would say that's that's a kind of Christianity that I would like, you know, because obviously I'm, I'm just like you. I'm critical of other because obviously there's many different forms of Christianity, right? As we've seen, as we're yeah. aware, there's like over thirty thousand, you know, different types of denominations, and and even the way you're sounding, it sounds like you're even what some people would call like a hopeful universalist when you were saying earlier that you hope, you know, that people would have another chance after death. But I know that other Christians hearing that would be kind of bothered by hearing you say that they would be like no it's either you just die once and that's either heaven or hell you know so i'm aware that some christians would have a very strong very different opinion oh yeah they've, saying, they've, let they've let me know it too oh yeah and it, it's it's sad you know i mean I've, I've heard your other interviews and I, I i could sense that you have been through a lot of you know um criticisms from from people who probably do claim to be christian and i like hearing what you have to say because I, I see on how much it really changed yeah. your life and yeah. um which leads so, oh go ahead did you want to say something or? yeah so going to other every near-death experience is different they all have lots of commonalities yeah but the pro here's the problem anyone who's really had a near-death experience will say that it's ineffable which means you cannot really adequately describe it or speak about it so you come back and you've had this like ineffable which another word for would be mystical experience of god or whatever of the divine 
and you're trying to think of how to talk about it. So your first problem is you got language. Like, for example, um, I use the word love all the time. Someone, <clears throat> someone wrote to me and she says, all you ever talk about is love. It's boring. Talk about <laughs> like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, excuse me. You know, like, you know, love is the most abused, overused, indefinable word I could possibly be using except for God. And, um, but it's, it's the word, you know? So I, I like to, I throw in, I throw in like synonyms like compassion or kindness or, you know, sure. be good, whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, it's really hard to talk about. So we come back from this experience and we, and we struggle to define it in language. Then the other thing is we struggled to find it within the context of our culture. I have studied other world religions. I find good things in them and I find stupid things in them, things I don't appreciate. Um, I find things that I'm critical about. I, of course, I find that in Christianity too. Yeah. Um, and the one that resonates with me is the culture that I was raised in, that I grew up in. And I'm not apologizing for it. It's like everybody is comfortable in their own culture. I just had a, a, a friend of mine who's a pastor in Kenya um, stay with me last week, and um, he was craving Kenyan food. And I'm like, I don't know of any Kenyan restaurants here in mid America. <laughs> so I finally, I took him to a Mexican place, really, <laughs> and I said, is this like Kenya? He goes, yeah, this is a lot like Kenyan food. So I was like, okay, I hit it. I took, <laughs> you know, he had he had rice and beans and uh, vegetables and chicken, you know, all mixed up together, and uh, he was happy. Um, you know, a little little uh, little home cook and comfort there. Well, you know, it resembled Kenyan food. I can understand that because uh, I've traveled. Um, but I do like to experience other cultures and things. Sure. E even knowing that my experience is very superficial and doesn't that, understand. I've done, uh, I did 27 trips to a Mayan village in Belize, Central America. It took people there. And the more I spent time with those people and worked in that village and loved those people, the more I realized that we were all, more different than I thought. <laughs> I'm still I'm still realizing we're more different than I thought. You know, and and the differences are good and bad. You know, um, and from my culture, it's hard to like. Let me just illustrate this with one point. They're poor, and we try to make some of them into entrepreneurs, into business people. We and we tried to create some businesses and invest in those businesses. They're terrible. They give everything away. Mm. They don't. They don't know about building capital and you know and working for profit. They, um, they're the worst business people in the world. It's like you know you love them for giving stuff away and for sharing everything and not caring about whether the business is successful or not. Because um, we invested a lot of money in them and time and energy. But on the other hand, they're so generous and so loving and kind that it's like. No, stop being so loving and kind. <laughs> Be <more> selfish, you know. <laughs> Be like Americans. We're totally selfish, you know. Um, it, it's it's really funny. So to our job is to try and um, 
not tolerate other people, not tolerate their religion. Our, our job is to try and appreciate um, them and their differences, even though we may not see things the same way, we may see things very differently, to try and um, know them and love them. I, I believe that um, God really is universal and that we should strive to seek that unity amongst all people. And so you got near death. I, so when I hear near death experiences and they say this and that and stuff that, I mean, sometimes I hear stuff that I find really objectionable, like I am God. Mm. I mean, that I don't like that at all. I think that's a terrible thing to say. Um, because I want to go up to and say, no, you aren't. <laughs> you know, your God's way too small. <laughs> you need to rethink it. Um, I just think that um, they are not speaking well. One of the reasons why I went to seminary was, um, of course, one of the reasons was I wanted to be a pastor and I needed to be trained. But the other reason why I went to seminary is like I wanted to understand Christian theology so that I could um, speak um, in an educated way and not in an ignorant way. And I, I'll just say this and then I'll stop venting. Um, I hear near-death experiences who may be successful in another profession, but they don't know squat about theology and they think they do. And they say stupid, idiotic things that theologically don't make any sense. Um, and I go, oh, well, you know, they think they're so smart and they don't know what they don't know. But you know what? No one's asked me to do surgery. No one's asked me to um, design uh, cell phones. And, you know, and for good reason, you know, really good reason not to ask me to do surgery or to design cell phones because I don't know anything about it. But the nice thing is, is I don't pretend to know anything. So mm -hmm. how is that for a rant? <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. I mean, I mean, yeah. So that's one of the things that was going on in my mind, as I was mentioning earlier, about when I was reading your book, I was when I was reading the messages that you were trying to come, you know, get across, I was thinking, is this what he heard in the NDE directly from Jesus and the angels, or is this something that just developed over time through his, you know, theology and his training, et cetera? I mean, those were the things that were going on in my mind. And yeah. so, so one of the things that in your book you did talk a lot about was heaven and hell, which is a very uh, quote unquote hot topic, you know. And uh, you know, it's, it it did seem in a way a little bit like kind of black and white. At least that's my impression that I got from you. It seemed kind of black and white for you where those who love God go to heaven. Those who don't want God, they go to a place called hell. It's where you, where you go to either one or the other, which is very common uh, amongst Christians. You know, do you still see the afterlife that way that when a person dies, it's either heaven or hell? Or well, are there many other planes of reality besides those two destinations? You know, based upon... Yeah, it's because... Yes, because it's way more complicated than that in that um, in Catholicism, there's this idea of purgatory. And I heard a uh, Catholic priest, his name's Richard Rourke, he's a Franciscan. Sure, Richard Rourke, yeah. Oh, you know him? Yeah. I mean, not in really person, good. but yeah, I know his words. Yeah. Really good guy. But anyways, um, he was explaining that purgatory is not a place, it's a state of being. And my understanding of purgatory and Catholic theology is it can be like hell. And it can also be um, like Mother Teresa might have to wash dishes in the kitchen for a week and then she goes, she goes up a level, whatever. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh -huh. um, 
And when Jesus was explaining heaven to me, he told me that there's all kinds of entry levels, some of them very, very um, basic and, you know, um, others are more sublime and blissful. But the point is, is that God wants everybody to progress. So I believe that um, although separation from God and movement toward God's, you know, put it this way, you're either moving towards God or you're moving away from God. So what hell would be, would be people that want to move away from God, that want to be alienated from God, and heaven is people that want to be with God and are moving towards God. So the distinction between heaven and hell could get pretty pretty thin. I mean, you would know? you describe, as a lot of Christians do, is hell is the absence of God? Yeah, but that God is not absent in God. That's just they, they want to believe that they're away oh, okay. from God. Yeah, I mean, because that's the follow-up question I would ask, though. You know, I'm glad you cleared that up because when I hear a lot of Christians say that hell is the absence of God, I'm like, but I thought uh, nothing can separate you from the love of God. <laughs> you know, and, right. and and if God's out of my present, how can God be in a how can a person be in a place where God isn't if God is supposedly yeah. in my present? So you're right. saying it's the mindset uh, yeah. of the people there because you know you're describing a kind of uh, afterlife that is different from at least the evangelical tradition that I was raised in you know for us it's either heaven or hell there's no purgatory it's not like yeah. the eastern orthodox church where it talks about it's just you know it's like a state of mind i mean hell yeah. is like a physical place and heaven's a physical place you know so that that's where i can see that yeah some christians will have a hard time with with what you're saying well, um with your version because the, yeah because people don't understand so I'm t what i'm talking about is ignorance they don't understand that in the afterlife, there's no time and space. There's no space as we know it. Like, for example, one of the things that Jesus and I did and that we talked about and that he showed me, which makes no sense in this world, is like in the afterlife, you can move through time and space without any transition, just at will. Mm -hmm. and so, and and I'm talking, and I'm not just talking about past, present, and future. I'm also talking about space and other dimensions, too, because there's, there's other dimensions of existence that we are completely ignorant of. Um, yeah. There's other, other, whole other physical universes that we are oblivious to at this time. Yeah, yeah. And that's where heaven and hell exist. They exist in another dimension where the laws of physics don't apply. So... Um, neither heaven nor hell are locked up, you know, boundaries. It's a lot more permeable than all that. But, you know, it, it all gets so incredibly beautiful and complex that when you try and talk, when I try and talk about it, I just lose people. Um, you know, they're just like, what, you know, it's often, but one way to think about it is like, look at the world around us. Um, Every tree is different. Every chrysanthemum flower is different. Every bird is different. Um, there's this huge, in, in our simple little world, and this, and this is um, nursery school. We're in nursery school. Jesus told me we're in nursery school, this place. This is for babies. Look at the diversity. Look at the variety that exists in the natural world. And then look at the diversity and variety in people. God's imagination and creative ability is like, totally out of control 
I mean, he, God just, yeah, let's, let's make up new stuff every day in every way, you know? Um, and people are, people are incredibly fascinating because they're also um, amazingly different. And God loves it. And to God, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just to come back to the issue of heaven and hell, because I know this is, it's a big topic, you know, and I know some of my listeners who, because my, my, I have a lot of different types of audience when it comes to my podcast and even my YouTube stuff. I mean, I have people who listen to me who are still Christian, who are uh, progressive Christians, who are agnostic, you know. So I know they're going to be, they, they would want some clarity, though, since we are talking about heaven and hell. Because, you know, because for me, there seems to be, like when I was growing up, like I said, I, I, I usually just thought of just heaven and hell. That's it. I didn't believe in purgatory or whatever. You know, I wasn't a Roman Catholic. Um, but then as I started studying, you know, near-death experiences and even having my own out-of-body experiences, I started to have experiences of other dimensions, you know, so to speak. And that's what really opened up my eyes to, like, yeah. there's many, you know, different planes of reality. And so for me, there seems to be a difference between, like, the fundamentalist Christian belief, and that's where I'm kind of, like, um, narrowing it down to the fundamentalist Christian belief in an eternal hell of an afterlife and hellish realities that people create based on what they've done. And I think some people, just from my observation, some people tend to go from one extreme to the other where it's either an eternal tor torture chamber for those who don't right. believe a certain way or everybody goes to heaven, you know, because God is love and, you know, so everyone goes to heaven and they rule out quote unquote hell altogether. But from the evidence that I've gathered throughout the years and because a lot of people assume that I'm, I'm, I'm the other one where it's all about, okay, Josh doesn't believe that there's a hell because he questions hell, so everybody goes to heaven. But I never really said my views in public before. I, I'm just questioning the traditional view of eternal right. conscious torment. But the evidence that I've gathered, it seems to point to neither of those extremes. You know, Correct me right. if I'm wrong, but the reality is, from what I gather, is that consciousness continues. So if you're, you're a jerk now, and you cross over, you, you could still be a jerk in the next life. I mean, like your you bad habits to, don't die. Jerky, yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, like no. So for people who are like alcoholics or drug addicts, when they cross over, th they could still have that problem. Even those who are suicidal, which is why I don't even say that committing suicide is the answer because people think that you know once you die, then all your problems go away. But I'm from what I understand is that if you're suicidal now and then you, you kill yourself, you're just bringing your problem to another location. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. people don't think that way. It's just either heaven or hell or everyone goes to heaven, you know, without realizing that consciousness still continues in the next life because of this whole idea of, you know, this reality of cause and effect, call it karma, call it whatever you want. But for me, that makes more sense. And from what I've spoken to with my, my friends who are also out of body travelers, it does bring back the human responsibility into play here, you know, because my, my friend Jurgen Ziva was on my show not too long ago. And then the classic works of Sil Silver Birch and Anthony Borgia, I mean, seems to confirm that it's not just this heaven or hell deal, but that you could still have our bad habits when we cross over, so to speak. So what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's way more complex than either the universalists or the fundamentalists think. I think they um, have try to make it so simple, make that's all they can handle, but um, it's way more complicated than that. And um, there's a line in the Bible, um, you reap what you sow. Yeah. And so what I 
what I try and tell people to do is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and follow Jesus because Jesus shows us how to do that. That's that's the way that you can be on the right side with God, and that's the best way to go. That's that's what I know. But we have no right to condemn anybody's soul, but we absolutely have the right and the duty and the obligation to um, seek justice in the world. For example, if you know a child that's being abused, you your duty is to do something about that. And that doesn't necessarily mean you go and kill the person who's the abuser. It may mean I'm reporting to the police and trying to um, get that child out of that situation, whatever. You know, if you, if you see um, a person um, down and out in the street, you have an obligation to go get them help. You know, go call 911 and get an ambulance, you know, take them to the hospital. The hate is not just being um, abusive. Hate is also, I think the worst kind of hate is being indifferent to injustice. And my job and your job and all of our job is like, I can't fix the world. I can't change the world. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Jesus. My job is to um, respond to the people that I'm in contact with um, and do my best with them that I can possibly do. And so what that looks like in reality is like my wife, I need to be nice to my wife. You know, that's a really big job. You know, um, I mean, I, I have a good wife and she's a good person, but I need to be kind and loving and empathetic to her. And um, I struggle to be that every day. You know, how can I how can I be um, really responsive to her? I have to be kind and loving to my um, children, to my grandchildren, um, whether they love me back or not. And then it involves my neighbors and the people that I work with at my job and the people that I casually meet. So like one of the ways that I do that is um, I, I was a server in a restaurant for seven years. I worked my way through school as a server. So I've got a heart for servers. And by servers, I don't just mean restaurants. I mean, um, all people that work with the public and I try and be a nice guy instead of being a jerk, you know, and sometimes you're working with a, uh, someone and they aren't nice back and they aren't helpful. You know, what do you do? Do you, you venture anger at them or do you um, try and be patient, kind and loving towards them? And so it, this living a, godly life, a Christ-like life, a life of compassion or love, whatever, however you define it, it's all the same thing. It's like every minute of every day um, trying to do the best that we can. And, and, I, and I believe that that is what is pleasing to God, is that we make an attempt at being kind and loving. And I think that that pleases God enormously. And conversely, I think when we don't do that, when we don't care about other people, or indifferent to them, which I think is the ultimate form of hate, um, it very much saddens God. Gee, what I experienced from Jesus when we watch things in my life, 
that were distasteful. Um, I felt enormous sadness because, you know, go back to the parent-child thing for again. When you see your kids do well in life, and what do parents want to see from their kids? They want they want their kids to be happy and healthy and to do well, right? I mean, you don't care if your kids are rich or poor. I mean, what you care about is that they they're having a good life. Um, that's pleasing to a parent. And when you see your kids um, self-destructive or hurtful to other people, what what do you feel? You feel it breaks your heart. And like, oh man, you know. I must have been a terrible parent. I was such a failure. I mean, what what is the matter with him? Why is he why is he bullying that child? You know, um, why, why is he being um, so cruel to his um, spouse or her spouse, whatever? You know, why are they neglecting their children? You know, why are they working at a at a job that they hate when they could be doing something so much more fulfilling, etc.? Why are they not working? You know, yeah. taking care of themselves, um, etc. Or the the big heartbreaker in society right now is um, all the people who have um, relatives who become um, alcoholics and drug addicts. Really, really. I I did want to mention one thing. You you talked about suicide. The thing that's so sad about suicide. Um, what I've studied about suicide and had to deal with it as a pastor is. It's the most selfish, cruel thing that a person can do. If you really want to hurt people, commit suicide. It's the most hurtful, cruel thing you can do. Because people who have lost someone to suicide, they grieve that the rest of their lives. They never, they never completely recover from it. I mean, think, think of what the suicide does to the mother and father, to the brothers and sisters, to the family of someone that does that. It's devastating. So suicide is a really um, cruel act. And I don't think God punishes people for committing suicide, um, but I think it's absolutely against the will of God to do that because we were created to love and care for each other and to experience the goodness and the beauty and the joy of creation. And when you, and when you say, I don't want any part of it, it's such an utter rejection of God and all the, all the good things that God gives. Cause we're, we are meant to be loving, happy, joyful, kind people. That's what God made us to be. And, um, it's really simple. Yeah. I mean, just to <laughs> confirm that, I mean, when I, the way I see life too, it's all about just loving and serving other people, um, loving yourself, loving your neighbor. And as I was mentioning about how consciousness continues um, after death, it's like it is so important to wake up now to the realization of love and, and, yeah. and loving everybody and knowing that what we do now does affect the hereafter. And um, that's why I was, as you were, you know, mentioning suicide is a horrible thing that could affect those who love the person who killed themselves, but it also affects the person who killed themselves because in the next life, that yeah. state of mind is possibly going to continue in the next life. You know, with, with, and I'm, even in your book, you're even mentioning about how when people are dead, they don't even realize that they're dead because it's just so real <laughs> that they're still alive and they still have their thoughts and they still have their problems and. 
and that's one of the things that um, I'm I'm really trying to share through my work is just to let people know like hey it, it matters what we do here because life continues and it does and it doesn't just wipe away all of our problems you know as we right. might think but as you were mentioning earlier we do continue to evolve you know for a lack of a better word to like higher levels so to speak right. you know um, call it heaven call it whatever you want and so yeah love is is so so important and what the next thing that i wanted to get to was well, i say one more thing oh about sure suicide. sure a uh, doctor who worked in the emergency room at the University of Connecticut was who was one of the founders of ions whose name eludes me at the moment I'm sorry did a study of people that he resuscitated from suicide and every he he interviewed them um, to find out the answer to it every single one of them said that suicide was a huge mistake and they would never do it again these are people that were successful suicides. I mean, they really did kill themselves and he really did bring them back. And these were people that had, had near death experiences and said, I'm really sorry I did that. I'll never do that again. But in the moment, they thought that that was a solution, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, that just reminds us of how important our life is and how, why you came back, right? Even, you know, to your own body because you're still not done, that you still have a, a plan and a purpose. In your life um just to transition to the next thing that i wanted to ask you about was because I, I like i said i heard some of your other interviews and i really liked hearing the stories about the visitations from angels when you mm -hmm. came back to your body do you mind sharing that because I, I found those really yep. really encouraging well one thing that i learned in my near-death experience and that has been confirmed by other near-death experiences we don't have a angel we have a whole team of angels sure. with us all place yeah and their job is to not intervene as much as possible, but they do intervene. Um, but they try not to because every time they intervene, they're robbing us of the consequences of our actions. But they do intervene because sometimes um, it's the consequences of other people's actions that they're trying to help us with. And it's really funny because I've met many people that they don't believe in God, they don't go to church, they don't believe in the Bible or any of that stuff, but they believe in angels. And they've had, and they've had like these amazing coincidences, you know, um, where they may not even use the word angel, but when I introduce the word angel, they go, yeah, that might've been like an angelic intervention. Um, I think everybody in the world has had these amazing experiences where something bad was about to happen and somehow it either didn't happen or they didn't um, suffer terribly from it. And I see those, and based on my own experience with the angels, that they are, they're just working all the time trying to uh, give us clues. Um, Do you mind sharing the, the plane ticket story? Sure. Um, so I had the surgery Saturday night, Sunday morning. And Tuesday, they took me out of the um, surgical recovery area and put me back in the room that I'd been in. And I was all, it was in the morning, and they'd taken my roommate out for tests. And my wife wasn't allowed to the hospital till two o'clock. So I'm lying there, and I'm sort of praying, saying to God, I think I'm going to die here. You know, I don't think I'm going to get well here. And I heard an audible voice, 
and said, um, buy tickets and go home Monday. And, and I said, I don't believe this. And the voice said, believe. <laughs> so, okay. I'm like, I'm hearing voices. So I, I mean, <laughs> I diagnosed my schizophrenia. <laughs> and, um, my wife shows up at two o'clock. My wife was then and is my ex-wife now was then and is now an attorney and she's a very hard woman very a hard a hard attorney a successful attorney and she walks in the room and i said um we need to buy tickets to go home monday now i'm like really really sick i'm supposed to be in this hospital for a month and uh, she goes what will i do for money the money's all gone you know we were we were we were supposed to have flown home. So we, we were down to like almost nothing. And I said, go call your parents. So she goes out into the hallway of the room. And there's a payphone out there. And she calls her mother and father in Iowa City, Iowa, and said, I need money. We gotta, I need to buy plane tickets because we've got to come home. And I said, how much do you need? And she said, I don't know. And I said, well, we'll... We'll try and get you $2,000 and we'll wire it to you. Um, give us the phone number at the pay phone. We'll call you back. So she gave him the number. 20 minutes later, they called back and they had called their bank. Their banker had just gotten back from a trip to Paris where there was a medical emergency and they had to get a new flight and overstayed and went to a hospital and all that. And so he knew all about it. And my wife came into the room and said, I've talked to my parent, the, the, her parents called her back, told her where to go. And she said, I got to go to a bank and get the money and the plane tickets. I'll be back in a couple hours. So two hours later, she comes back and she's holding two um, plane tickets back to the United States for Monday morning. And I said, why'd you do that? And she said, you told me to. And I said, you've never done anything <laughs> in your life that I told you to do. And that's crazy. How am I going to go home? I'm sick. I'm supposed to be here for a month. Like, why'd you buy those tickets? She said, you told me to buy the tickets. And I said, how much? She said, it was $2,000. And I said, now we owe your parents $2,000. How am I going to pay that? You know, like, are you out of your mind? And she said, okay, do you want me to go turn the tickets back in? Maybe I can return them. I said, don't sell those tickets. We're going on Monday. <laughs> she said, wait a minute. First, she said, get the tickets. Now you say, don't get the tickets. She said, she said, what am I supposed to do? And I said, hang on to the tickets. I think we're going home Monday. So I'm lying in the uh, room. It was uh, Friday. And she was supposed to take me out of the hospital on Saturday. No, I mean, on Sunday. It was, Saturday, it was Saturday. I'm lying in the hospital on Saturday. Nobody in the room. And I said, okay, God, if this is from you, this is like really cruel to do to me. Because like we've, we just borrowed $2,000 from my mother and father-in-law to fly home Monday. And I'm like really, really sick. There's no way I can even get out of, get out of this room and go there. Like, well, why are you doing this to me? Why are you, why are you tricking me? You know, and just getting me in tr deeper trouble. And the voice came back and it said, believe you're going home Monday. So Sunday comes and we're going to, we're going to leave. Our plane is um, leaving early in the morning, Monday morning. So, we're going to, the plan was we were going to leave Sunday night. So I'd, on Saturday, I had my wife bring me clothes because I didn't have any clothes. And uh, 
So Saturday, she brought me clothes. So Saturday, Sunday morning, I wake up and I have not had a bath and I've not been shaved and I stink. You know how sick people smell bad? Well, I smell, I mean, I smelled so bad I could hardly stand my own odor. I mean, it was just like I reeked and I was so filthy and I had a week's beard and all that stuff. And I got up Sunday morning. We had a little bathroom with a sink and a toilet. No shower, no bathtub, no nothing. And I bathed myself with a washcloth and soap and water from head to foot. It took me about three hours. This is a guy who wasn't getting out of bed, okay? I bathed myself. I shaved myself. I washed my hair. I got all dressed and went. She showed up at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm sitting in the chair all spruced up and ready to go, all dressed. And I said, okay, let's go. So we go walking out in the hallway. When we get out in the hallway, a nurse... Um, catches us and in French she's saying Mr. Strong what are you doing You're, you know go back to bed you know where are you going and I said oh no I'm supposed to leave today and she said I'm getting a doctor so she went and got a doctor whom I'd never seen before and he comes up to me he says go back to your room you know you know you know you haven't been um, released and I said oh no it's your mistake I'm I've been released today it's today's when I go home and he said, well, I'm going to go check the papers. So he leaves and he comes back and he said, okay, you can go. And I'm like, all right. And we walked out of the hospital. I went, uh, we went to the hotel. I went to bed because I was exhausted and got up in the morning, got on the plane. And um, it was a big lay, a four hour layover in New York city and got home. And when I got home, I went to the hospital and was admitted and the doctor who admitted me said, you got double pneumonia, um, extreme, um, extremely septic peritonitis. Um, and the doctor said to me, he said, I don't know how you made it here. And I thought, this doctor is not ready for me to tell him <laughs> the story. Yeah. So I just, I've got some good friends that helped me. And he sort of went, oh, okay. And I was admitted to the hospital. I was in that hospital for a couple months, and I was immediately put on critical. Critical is the worst. Um, it means they don't know whether you're going to live or die. And it was good that I went to that hospital. I mean, that I came home because I was not getting um, very good care in the French hospital. Right. right. Anyways. The, the angels started appearing to me both in France and in the American hospital telling me, you know, hang in there. You're going to make it. You're going to be okay. And I kept saying to the angels, I don't think I'm going to make it. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to die. And they're going, no, no, you're going to, it's going to be okay. Uh, and that's awesome. That, that was really encouraging when I read that. Um, so I guess in general, how, how have your closest friends and your family, especially your wife, how did they react when you shared your story with them for the first time? Your NDE story. Everybody, my mother, my wife, my kids, my friends, everybody told me I was crazy. It didn't happen. Get over it. Why is that? I'm fine. Like they well, were not, they weren't open to near death experiences no. or? Okay. No. And they weren't open to me because now all I wanted to talk about was Jesus and God and heaven and hell and all that stuff. And um, I started reading the Bible and I became like a real um, Bible thumper, you know? And, uh, a very regrettable face in my life. But anyways, uh, 
I was obnoxious. I was very, very zealous and obnoxious, and um, I turned everybody off. So, so what made some of them believe in your story eventually? Or do they still um, not believe you to this day? Most of them don't believe me to this day. Really? But wow. Yeah, I had I had I got my mother and father to go back to church and I got my I got a sister, one sister to go back to church. I'm still working on my other sister and my ex-wife hates my guts and So your ex-wife um, still doesn't believe you? No, she left me. Oh wow. She dumped. Okay. Um broke my heart. Yeah. But anyways, you know it, it it's how we treat people and um I, one thing that I, I mean, I, I consider myself an evangelist. I've, I've, I've spent my last over 30 years trying to talk people into God and Jesus and, you know, and all that good stuff. And um, one thing that I absolutely know is that we, we should not force, try to force religion on anybody. I mean, you, you, try, you try to live in a kind and loving way and try and if people are interested if they are interested try and tell them um here's some possibilities that you might want to consider um and there are people that are very receptive and there's people that don't want to hear about it and so uh, i figure it's between it's between them and god and if they want if they want to talk about that stuff great and if they don't i leave them alone sure sure yeah i get that so i mean well obviously your life has changed though based on this experience and career-wise, in fact, because, I mean, you were you were an artist. I mean, are you still an artist? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, so yeah. you still paint and do all that? Yeah. But, you're, but you became a pastor eventually, right? Yes. Okay. So how many years has that been since you've been a pastor? Well, when I started going to church, after about a year, they invited me to join a program to become a lay pastor, and that was a three-year program. And when I completed that, I knew that I wanted to be a uh, ordained pastor. So I went to seminary for three and a half years and got ordained. Um, while I was going to seminary, I had I was a student pastor. So uh, it depends on how you reckon it. Um, pretty pretty much, it's been a process, and I'm I'm still I'm still I got a little church. I'm I'm 71 years old, and I'm st I got a little bitty church. Um, part-time pastoring and i love it and cool gives me an opportunity to um play with my dogs and tend to flower garden and um pay attention to my wife and to travel and to um write and i've written th three books in the last few years and right, right. Um, your last one is uh befriend god right yeah okay cool yeah yeah, yeah. that's why i haven't read that one yet but Eventually, I'll pick that one up. But I remember when I first heard you, I was like, I really like this guy. You know, I'm like, I really appreciated uh, your story and your heart. And, um, you know, even finding out you became a pastor. Was, oh, interesting, you know, because I, I pastored as well back in the day and was a missionary and all that stuff. But, yeah, I just really um, appreciated you sharing your story. And I was, like, really happy for you. Because I could really sense the love in your you know, as you shared your story, I'm like, yeah, this guy's life has really changed. So good for him. <laughs> you know, that's why when I, when I heard some of your other interviews, I feel like some of them kind of came on a little bit uh, hard on you a little bit because uh, there are some of you, your interviewers weren't Christian. But I was like, no, nah, dude, you know, you have a story that you that you want to share. But so. I, I love, love talking to um, people that have different points of view. Like the most exciting thing that's happened to me recently was uh, 
I've been invited now to go to Kenya and my wife and I are going to go to Kenya next year so that I can preach. And I'm so, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm part of the reason I'm going to Kenya is for selfish reasons. Cause I want to go to Africa and I want, <laughs> to, be, I want to see what's happened there. Sure, it's yeah. like exciting stuff happening in Africa. Yeah. Really yeah. stuff. And I love, I love, I love African people. The African people I met, they're so warm, you know, they're much more open and more warm than Americans are. And um, people that have been to Africa have all told me the same thing, that the African people are so great. So I'm, my wife and I are going to Africa, and we're going to have a wonderful time. I just talked to the guy who invited me last night, matter of fact, and he said, he said, you know, you're going to preach three times a day. And he said, can you do it? And I said, well, if you give me rest in between, I think I can. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no problem. No problem. I mean, I'm going, I'm going to Kenya to work. I mean, I, I'm going to. Preaching three times a day is, you know, could be exhausting, but I'm sure that <laughs> given the strength to do that. For you sure, know? for sure. Let me know when you're when you're out here in the Philippines. That would be cool. I would love to come to the Philippines. Yeah. Give me an invite. For sure, for sure. We could work something out, dude. Yeah, I man. So, I mean, any closing thoughts or advice you want to give to our listeners before we end? Yeah. Um, when I asked Jesus what I should do if I came back to this world, because this is when I was arguing to not come back here, he said, love the person that you're with. And I thought that was a really inadequate, simplistic answer, which I argued about. But anyways, that's what I've been um, trying to do for 30 plus years. That's it. Love the person I'm with. And what I found out is it's the most interesting, challenging thing in the world. Because like when someone's really loving and kind and sweet, it's very rewarding. It's very nice and it's very easy. But I'm not always around those kind of people. Sometimes grumpy, <laughs> right. nasty, negative people. I'm like trying to love them. It's like very challenging, you know. And uh, I think Jesus told me that if I loved the person that I was with, it was God's plan and God's will. And that's what would change the world. So I'm trying to go with the plan, you know. For sure, dude. That, that's good. I mean, that's it. It's it's sounds so simple, but that's the answer to everything, pretty much. It is just love. <laughs> I, I know, I, and it sounds so. It sounds so simple and cliche, that, but it's the truth. Yeah, yeah. like kind of dumb, like <laughs> naive, you know. But I think it's. I really do think it is the answer. And if we did, I think we could turn this world into a paradise. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, I mean, are you going to be working on, um, I know you just finished a book not too long ago. Are you working on another book or, or just that's not uh, in the well, plans anytime? I got contacted by a Hollywood producer and they're going to theoretically make a movie. And I don't know how that's going to turn out because um, Hollywood has its own way of doing things. And it turns out um, I may have little or no influence over it. And so that's that's a big project. And uh, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that would be cool. I got my church and I'm, I'm working on a... a big painting right now that I'm very excited about and what, what's your church you know, do you have a name of your church yeah St. Mark's United Church of Christ oh, okay in Kentucky, in Kentucky? Oh, yeah. okay cool that's right okay cool cool yeah I thought you were like nice in New York or something <laughs> since you're on the east coast no, oh, no okay. I'm, I'm in I'm in the middle of America okay cool yeah, yeah, yeah so I mean so how can my listeners keep in touch with you what's your website yeah, I've got a website, and there's a contact on it. And um, if they fill out the contact, it comes direct. It's an email directly to me. So, and I try and keep up with it. Okay. You, do you sell your paintings there too? Try. 
Try okay, but they can check out your work there, so that's cool. Cool, yeah. cool. Yeah, so you guys be sure to check out Howard's book um, and his paintings. But you can check out his book, uh, My Descent Into Death, and his other books as well. Um, Befriend God on Amazon.com. If you like listening to audiobooks, uh, remember that you can download one of his books absolutely free with a free 30-day trial. Uh, you can just go to audibletrial.com slash flipside. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash flipside. And if you really appreciate this show, you want to help keep it going, because um, folks, it actually costs money to do this. Uh, if you want to support me, you can go to patreon.com slash Joshua Tongle. Once again, that's patreon.com slash Joshua Tongle. I'd really appreciate your guys' help. And don't forget to write a review on iTunes because it'll help more people discover the show. And plus, I read them too, which is encouraging for me to read as well. And of course, please share this interview with your friends. So Howard, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate your, your heart and your story. And um, you just, yeah, you're, you're changing people's lives. So thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Joshua. I think you're doing a really good thing. Keep it up. God's smiling. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All righty, guys. Once again, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you guys on the flip side. I'm out. Peace. <laughs>